Well, let me pray for us, and we'll pick back up where we left off last week with this seventh chapter of the Confession. Father, we thank You this morning for Your sovereign care and control over us, uh, our world, and our lives. Thank You, Lord, for Your promise to do us good in Jesus, and that Your sovereignty is not something that we have to be afraid of or fear but it's actually something that we can rest in and take comfort in because you have promised that you are working all things together for good for those uh, who love you and have been called according to your purpose. And Lord, we know that we love you because you first loved us and you have shown grace to us in Christ. And we thank you for him this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Um, We pray, Lord, that you would send your spirit to be our teacher. Um, especially as we look at a number of different passages this morning and deal with a lot of content. And we pray, Lord, that we would not um, lose sight of you and your grace and your love to us in the midst of this, um, because that's actually what we'll, what we'll be looking at. And so we pray that th- this would sink deep into our hearts and that we would come away changed and that we would have a great desire to worship you, a great desire uh, to express gratitude for all that you have done for your people in history and how we are now recipients of that love and that grace. Uh, So be with us now, we pray. Uh, Enable us to know you more for your glory and for our good. Amen. All right, come on in. Um, Okay, a quick review from last week. Um, Chapter 7 of the Confession. um, And let me know if that's too loud or anything, we can adjust or if we need to turn it up. Um, yeah, chapter 7 of the Confession is uh, what, it, it's arguably the most significant, too loud, yeah, because I'm still projecting as if I don't have this. Um, do what? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just to clarify, sounds like a user problem to me. How's that? We can actually, yeah, we can still record and use the ALS devices with... Um, without even having those on. Um, so this is, the, uh, this is arguably uh, the most significant chapter in the whole of the confession. We, the other one would be maybe on the decree of God because it, it, it shapes how the divines or shows how the divines um, understand and have laid out their, this, this uh, systematic theology. But this chapter is hugely important because this is how they understand the structure of the Bible. They understand God to be a covenantal God who deals with His people in terms of covenants. And so this will become... It's significant that this is where it is in the confession because it uh, it frames their understanding of what Jesus has come to do. Um, The role that He has played as our covenant mediator the one in whom all of God's covenant promises find their fulfillment um, is in Him. And so, um, I've decided, again, trying to exercise a little bit of realistic wisdom, uh, that we will do this also next week. So, uh, I'm anticipating not getting through everything. Um, And I want to take our time here because this is a hugely important topic. So, a couple definitions of what a covenant is. Again, I said last week... Uh, Palmer Robertson says it's kind of like defining mother and that there are all sorts of ways, uh, accurate, correct ways to, um, to define it. Um, 
So here are a couple. A covenant of bond in blood, sovereignly administered. You'll see that particularly in the covenants that we look at today, the instances of it in the Old Testament. And then a, a quote from Williams. A covenant's a relationship between persons begun by the sovereign determination of the greater party in which the greater commits himself to the lesser in the context of mutual loyalty and in which mutual obligations serve as illustrations of that loyalty. There's actually been a significant uh, advance in our understanding of covenants that happened somewhere, I think, in about the 50s or so, when we discovered a good number of documents from these Hittite uh, treaties that, that, were, uh, that were these covenants that, were, that would have been in about the time of the, in the ancient Near East when uh, the Bible was being written, and these, uh, these occurrences would have... Um, these covenants would have been would have happened, and so uh, that definition right there is based on a lot of information that we have learned even from other ancient Near Eastern literature. This covenant between persons: there's a greater party and a lesser party. The greater commits himself to something, and then there's this mutual loyalty between them and a set of obligations that go with it. Yes. Yes, that's great. Yeah, um, that, that's good. It's sometimes a covenant is just defined as, a, as like a contract or an agreement between two parties. It's actually, that, that, that can be a bit misleading when we look at the Bible. It's great to point out that there is a difference here in the way that these covenants would have been uh, executed is that there would have been a greater party and a lesser party. It was not as though this was a mutually, um, where both parties were equal and mutual. And you see that particularly in these biblical covenants in that um, God comes as king we come as subject, and he sets the terms in a gracious way, but a no less sovereign way. So um, it is different from a contract in that way. Uh, okay, so the way that the, uh, the standards understand these, the, the, the covenant uh, theology of the Bible is in terms of two basic covenants. The first is the covenant of life. This is what we looked at last week. Uh, this is paragraph two. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works sometimes called covenant of life or covenant of creation, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. And this arises out of Genesis 2 with the prohibition. Uh, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Remember how much we emphasized last week the goodness and kindness of God and the way that he provided for Adam in the garden. This tree is good to eat. It's pleasant to look at. He's given him good work. He's given him this companion of a spouse and uh, these animals that he reigns over. Enjoy all of these things. Eat of all these trees except for this one, he says. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the children's first catechism puts it this way. Did Adam act for himself alone in the covenant of life? No, he represented the whole human race. Uh, again, you can jot down Romans 5. We're not gonna, we looked at it last week. Romans 5, 12 to 21, that sets up uh, the covenantal structure of the Bible as Paul understands it, where all of humanity is either in Adam or in Christ. Born into this as our representative can come into this by putting our faith into Jesus. So, this is the summary of it. Party number one, God. He's party number one in all these. Uh, the other party, the lesser party, Adam and his posterity. He didn't act for himself alone. The promise is life and blessing. 
The conditions were perfect and personal obedience. Don't eat at this tree. Do everything else I'd called you to. Enjoy it all. Uh, trust me in the midst of it. The penalty then was death and cursing. So uh, paragraph three, this is what happened. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace. So this is the second covenant. These two major ones that encompass the whole of the scriptures. Wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So here's the, here's the way to, using kind of covenantal term, terminology here, Adam's failure as the representative or covenant or federal head of humanity. Okay, So that's how he functions in this role in Romans 5. And that word federal is from the Latin word for covenant. So that's all that means. Covenantal head, federal head, think representative. Um, so yeah, did Adam act for himself alone in the covenant of life? No, he represented the whole human race. So Adam failed in this covenant. He, uh, he violated the terms of the covenant. He ate of the tree he wasn't supposed to eat of. Uh, and then death and decay began making their way through the whole of creation. The whole, uh, the, the world is riddled with sin um, we ourselves are, in, are we are guilty by imputation, by Adam as our representative. We are born guilty, uh, and then we also inherit from him this uh, this corruption that's called original sin. So we have a sinful nature. Our nature. We just have one nature, and because of Adam, it's been it's it's uh, every part of it's been touched by sin. And from that, from our sinful nature, proceeds all of these actual sins in our life. So that's where we are in Adam. Um, but the covenant of grace then encompasses the rest of the Bible. And that God, and we, we started to look at this last week, God shows His grace immediately. This happens in Genesis 3.15 right from the start. This is in the middle of pronouncing the curse in the midst of the judgment, he actually uh, shows grace and shows the beginnings, the seed form of this covenant promise. And it comes in Genesis 3.15. We looked real briefly at this last week. And, and the fancy term there is proto-evangelium, which just means uh, beforehand gospel, the gospel before. Um, and so most point to this and say this is the first instance that we have of some shadowy, shadowy seed form of the gospel, uh, the gospel promise. And here's what it is. It's coming in the pronouncement of the curse uh, upon the serpent. And God says this, I will put enmity or conflict or disagreement between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, seed of the serpent, and her offspring, seed of the woman. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is the gospel announced in advance. And, and what happens here is obviously we don't see a full developed covenant in this promise. But what we do see, and this is a covenantal element, is that God is binding himself to this promise. He's making a promise that says the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. I'm going to overcome what this serpent just did. I'm going to triumph over evil, death, sin, corruption, etc., few things to notice about this that we didn't get to look at last week. Um, 
One is that God is the one who initiates this work of rescue. And he does so in kind of, some have called it like a backhanded kind of way. Um, But he, he shows his grace in that he is the one who introduces this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Why would that be important, you think? Let me ask it in a different way. What, what would happen if, if he didn't introduce this conflict? What would the relationship be between the... Uh... Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the seed of the serpent and seed of the woman would probably continue to side with one another as was already, had it already occurred by Eve siding with the serpent and listening to what he had said. And so that would have been the natural outworking is that it would have continued down this path of them siding together. So what God does is in his grace, he introduces conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and reverses what would have been a natural relationship. So he's not going to let his people go down that path. Another thing to notice is that his mission of rescue is going to continue. And you see this in the language of offspring or seed. This is going to be a long term rescue plan that's going to be in place. So his mission is going to come through the seed of the woman. Uh, and and it's, it's through childbearing. I mean, it's going to be through, the, through this lineage that it's going to happen. And then the seed of the woman is going to suffer in some way, right? It's the same word there for bruises head, bruises heel. So the seed of the woman is going to be hurt, bitten, bruised. And, uh, and so this is how it works out in the Bible is that even into immediately in Genesis 4, you see this, but you can trace the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman all the way through the scriptures. Um, and so it culminates then in Jesus as this seed of the woman. And uh, and the way that his head or the way that his heel is bruised is his death on the cross, ultimately. And this is what fulfillment in Christ looks like with him triumphing over um, over the seed of the serpent. Hebrews two. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, death on the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And then 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So this is his, an aspect of his work on the cross is him coming forth as this triumphant king who has stepped and crushed the head of the serpent. Okay, But he's done so in a way that nobody would have expected, right, by, by, by and through his own death. So... In the end, what we're going to see here is that through this covenant of grace, there is always and only has been one way of salvation, and it's through faith in Christ. We'll see that in these next couple paragraphs. Any questions on that? That's a huge, significant point for the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible, some have said it's the... From Genesis 3.15 on is an outworking of Genesis 3.15, that that's what the rest of the Bible is. So, no question? Okay. Um. So next two paragraphs in the confession that describe this covenant of grace. Uh, paragraph four, this covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament. That's really, on, that's really only, I mean, in Hebrews we get some of this. This is one of these chapters where our understanding of the Bible, I think, has improved significantly. Because it, it's not found in Scripture, oftentimes referred to as a testament. Um, in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance. Again, Hebrews is big on this. Maybe not the whole of the Bible, though. 
with all things belonging to it, therein bequeathed. Paragraph 5. This covenant, this is this is a huge point. This covenant was differently administered, one covenant of grace, differently administered in the time of law. And when you hear time of law, this is a shorthand way of speaking of the entire Old Testament. Differently administered in the time of law and in the time of, of the gospel. Read New Testament there. Under the law, that is New Test or Old Testament, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews. Okay? So this is how the, the covenant of grace was administered. This one covenant administered in the Old Testament was through all of these sort of... Um, these uh, prototype sort of ways, through a promise, through prophecy, sacrifice, all these other things, um, all for signifying Christ to come, which for which were for that time, that is, in the time when they were when, when they were sacrificing a lamb and putting the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, when they were offering up repeated sacrifices, all these things for that time for them for the Jewish people, the, Isra the Israelites. Those things were sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah. So they, they are trusting God, and we'll look at this in a moment in Genesis 15. They're believing God, they're trusting in God's promises, and though they don't understand and have this complete picture that, yeah, it's going to be this Jewish Messiah who's going to come in, and he's going to be a carpenter, he's going to live, die and then actually be raised. They're not having all those conscious thoughts, but they are believing God's promises to him, to them as He's revealed Himself. And because of the way the Spirit of God operates, uh, they are being instructed and built up in faith in the promised Messiah. They have full remission of sins and eternal salvation. Okay? Um, so, if you have the, like the Old Testament leading up to the cross... You have all of these, however they put it, prophecies, sacrifices, um, yeah, circumcision, Paschal Lamb. All of these things are looking forward to here. And the Spirit is at work in all of these things in some way, like really applying the work of Jesus in a preliminary way before it had occurred, that, so that it was sufficient and efficacious for the time that was always building up to this, which is the full, final, complete uh, complete uh, fulfillment of the, uh, all these promises and, uh, to which all these things were, were pointing. So this is, a big, this is a big point, that there is one covenant of grace, and this is where we would understand this too, even from Romans 5. These are the two fundamental covenants. There's one covenant of grace that's administered differently. Okay? Um, questions on this? Yeah, Doug. Yes. Um, it, against, and I won't get too much into this, against classical dispensationalism, definitely. Um, if that doesn't mean anything to you, then don't worry about it. It's not a not anything you need to know. Um, but th there 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 was a way of viewing the scriptures that's really not very prominent anymore. It has a, it's, there's now a progressive dispensationalism that, in large part, would agree with what I've everything we've said here. Um, 
classical dispensationalism would divide up covenant with Noah, covenant with Moses, or covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses, and it would be uh, there would be a different operating principle within each of these. So, exactly, it wouldn't be this underlying fundamental uh, gracious interaction with God throughout. They'd say, well, for instance, covenant with Moses, that's a covenant of works, that people were saved by works then. Then they get to this next point with uh, David and things change a little bit more. And now we're in the church age where it is by faith, but it wasn't always. So yes, this is, this is against that, but that's not, just to clarify, we've got plenty of brothers and sisters who are dispensationalists, who are progressive dispensationalists in the area around us who would have no issues with this right here. Um, so here's a way to, maybe this is a good way to see this. We've got covenant of life with Adam. And he, here's what, I, what we can see working out here. Um, you've got Noah, Abraham, uh, Moses, and David. That'll work. Um, and then the New Covenant. And, and what, what the way that the Confession talks about this is that it's this ever-increasing, kind of ever-expanding covenant that's building on what's happened before, but it's all of grace throughout. Okay? And it finds its culmination in the cross. That's terrible. <laughs> there we go. Um, so th- this is maybe a visual representation of what's being said. It's administered differently in these instances, but it's one covenant of grace. It's all an outworking of Genesis 3.15. So what, what I want to do now is begin looking through the instances of the covenant of grace in Scripture and see how these build on one another. Okay, So we're going to try and get through right here. We'll see. Um, so here's where we first see this, how it's administered differently. First, well, let me take questions. Are there any questions with that before we, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. True, true believers within. I see your point right there. Yeah. It's not, yeah, God's intent, and this is why, like, you think of Romans 4, and why, and we'll look at Genesis 15, why... Paul makes such a huge deal about Abraham being justified by faith before the law was administered, before the law came. Law was given to Moses, but Abraham's justified by faith. So that's a huge point is that all people, all of God's people throughout all of his dealings have always and only ever been saved by faith. But that faith was in, in this case, you know, it was in kind of a shadowy sort of figure. It was in like, yes, this lamb has taken away my sins um, and has died in my place, but we have to keep offering sacrifices. Um, 
This sign of circumcision shows God's promise to me, and I believe that God is a God to me and a God to my children after me. Um, and so it's always by faith, always by faith. Um, <clears throat> but these and all these things pointed forward to the cross. And they were, maybe this arrow is not helpful. Um, in, in Romans 3, Paul says that there was a time where God was passing over sins. Um, that's what's occurring here. He's, these are efficacious. That is, they're effective. They apply salvation to those who are trusting in God's promises by faith um, before the final sacrifice has actually been accomplished in history. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Faith from first to last. And that's why in paragraph 3, the, uh, the confession talks a lot about that, to say that it's always been in faith in Christ or faith in Messiah, administered differently, but there's one way of salvation, and that's faith in Jesus. Yes. Yes. Yeah, a response that says, here's what it looks like to live in relationship with me. Yeah, great point. Well, that's what you're in Isaiah, too. Because I mean, God says, don't sacrifice anymore. Your, your people are gone. I don't even care. Yeah. Don't, don't even bother anymore. Yes. Yeah, yeah, there are ways where they, they violate. Um, and that's, we'll get to this in a moment, but Israel continues to drop the ball. And it's not because they just sin that's the problem, because, and we'll see this in a moment, particularly in the Mosaic law, there is an entire sacrificial system built into this law that is for, uh, that is the way in which you would be, that you would deal with your sin. So when Israel breaks covenant, we're talking more like apostasy, like walking away, like I'm, I am turning my back. I don't want anything to do with this God of, of Israel. And that's when, they, that, that's when you get comments like that where they get judged and eventually sent into exile because it's, it's more along the lines of like all in all, like just all out, I'm done. I'm walking away from, from God completely. So it's not, yeah, not just sins, but grievous, covenant-violating, sort of, I'm done, I'm walking away kind of sins. Okay, um, well, let's look at the, well, we'll look at the covenant with Noah, and then probably get through Abraham, and we'll probably stop there. Um, so, covenant with Noah occurs in Genesis 6 through chapter 9, verse 17. A couple of quick points here, a couple of passages, uh, just select passages there. One is that uh, Genesis 6, 8. Uh, God has just said there's evil all over the world, but Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then uh, Genesis six eighteen to 22, I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all the flesh, you should bring two of every sort, uh, everything in creation here. Uh, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And then chapter 9, this is after the flood. And God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, livestock, every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature 
that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So here's a quick summary of that, this administration of the covenant of grace. It's, it's unique uh, in a couple ways. Um, first party is God. Second party is Noah, his offspring after him. And here's what's unique. Every, it's made with every living creature. There's this covenant that the, every person is a beneficiary of this covenant, and that's what's unique. They, the others narrow a bit in there uh, who benefits. But here's the promise that God's never going to, again, uh, flood the earth to destroy it. He's going to preserve, and this is the, where there's the, this initial part of the covenant of grace. He's going to preserve the seed of the woman spoken of in Genesis 3.15. Uh, the seed comes through Noah and his family. So he's going to do that, uh, and, he's going to, and he's going to preserve the whole of his creation as well. He's going to judge it all. There's a sense in which this is new creation that occurs here. Um, the, the cultural mandate that is spoken of in Genesis 1, 26 through 28 is restated at the beginning of uh, Genesis 9. We didn't read it, but it's, it's there. Um, and this is because God is uh, he's going to continue on his promise here, and he's dealt with this, uh, this widespread evil in the world here. The sign of this covenant promise that he's made is the bow, the rainbow. Um, what, what's interesting about this, two, two things. One is that this actually, in Genesis 9.15, is, is uh, described as a sign for God to remember. Uh, that God has put this bow. He says, Behold, I'll stop, or, uh, sorry, let me read it. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So there's a sense in which this bow hangs in the clouds as this sign to God himself. And of course, as a reminder to us of this promise. The other thing that's interesting about this is that the word for bow there, you notice in verse 13, it doesn't say rainbow just says bow, because this Hebrew word is just this one word for bow, and it's the same word that could have been used for a war bow. This gets into the realm of maybe overreading the text, but it's fascinating and interesting enough to say. It could be, could be, might not be, that this is intended to symbolize God setting aside His war bow against creation and against the way in which He would judge the world. Um, so, some have said that that might be the case. It would be cool if it was. I don't know if it is, though. Um, so, he set his bow in the clouds. That's the sign. So, then the biggest, maybe most significant covenant of the Old Testament is that of the covenant with Abraham. And there are three big, big points about this, three instances of it. And it comes with the promise, the covenant ceremony, and then the sign. So 1 Genesis 12, this is the covenant promise. So it comes to Abram. Um, things have continued on. Uh, after Noah, um, you've got these, this table of nations set up. You've got the Tower of Babel, where people are trying to make a name for themselves, build this tower up. Uh, and then Genesis 12 enters, and it becomes then a focal point for the rest of the Bible as well. And here's what here's what said. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you've got one covenant, or sorry, one promise that's made here with three uh, sort of facets to it. One is the seed, people, nation. The other is the land that he's going to bring them to. And the third is that it's through his family he's going to end up blessing the world. This is going to be taken on by Israel, the call to Israel, to be a light to the nations, um, to, to be the family and the people through which God is going to restore his world to a state of blessing. It's going to come through Abraham. So this is a huge, huge promise in Genesis 12. Um, go ahead and open up to Genesis 15. I didn't put this on there because it would have been a lot. But I do want us to, to read this. Y- yes. Yeah, go ahead, Doug. Yeah. Yeah, well, with those... Yeah, yes, because Hebrews, you could go to... He, I mean, Hebrews, the entire book is hugely helpful, but particularly Hebrews 7 through 9. Right, yeah, the, the reason is that there's specific reference in, in Hebrews to these covenants. Yeah, and then, yeah, so 7, 8, 9, 8 in particular, and then chapter 11 of Hebrews as well. And then the Ezekiel passage is likely some reference to the new covenant or the everlasting covenant that's spoken of in Jeremiah 31. But yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point, though, to say this isn't just isolated based on these particular Old Testament texts, but much of this is, I mean, you think of Galatians 3, Romans 4, these other places where the New Testament really helps us understand how it helps us to understand these passages. Um, and that's what they're going for. Okay, Genesis 15. Um, would somebody, could I get a volunteer to read 1 through 6? Verses 1 through 6, please. Somebody do that. You take this. Great. 
Great. Thanks, Max. Um, could somebody, another volunteer for 7 through 11? Do you want to take that? Thanks. Uh, that's that's great right there. And yeah, I'll, I'll pick up the rest as we go. That's perfect. Um, thank you. Um, okay, if, if, and we'll we'll look at the rest of this, and I'll just walk us through here. Um, first, I just want to point out that this is all of grace here. Abraham is believing God's promise. It's counted to him as righteousness. We see that in verse 6. He's coming to God with these questions. Uh, God's made this promise that going to uh, make of through my line, there's going to be this great people and we're going to have this land. Two huge problems. One, uh, my wife can't have kids and uh, she's 90 and I'm 100 plus, you know. And so he says, I don't know how this is going to happen. Is Eliezer Damascus going to be the one through whom this promise comes? Because I don't see how this could happen. And God says, step outside, look up at the stars, number them if you can. And so what's happening is that, uh, that he can't number them And the thought is, if God can do this, then he can bring life from what appears to be death. Okay, So he does that. Uh, And then the other problem is, um, you've also, God, by the way, said that we're going to have this land, but right now there are a bunch of people still in it, and I'm out here wandering around. How do I know that, how how can I be certain? How can I know that you're going to follow through on your promise? So this second part, this, the question about the land is what comes in in this ceremony and where things get a little weird for us, right? Um, so here's, here's what's happening. We, we have this covenant ratification ceremony in verses 9 through 11. If you glance back there, um, as Max read, there speaks of all these animals being three years old. That's important because they would have been animals in the prime of their lives, okay? Verse 10, he brings them all of them, and then he cuts them in half and lays each half over against the other so that there's this pathway down the middle and they're cut over against the other. Significantly, this word for making a covenant is actually cutting a covenant, which is intended to represent what is actually being done to these animals. Even more significant is that what's being said is you would cut these animals pass through, you, you, you then would articulate the promise, conditions, obligations of the covenant, and then both parties would pass through these pieces, which would be to say, if I don't follow through on what I've just promised, then do to me what was done to these animals. Tear me apart. Kill me. This is an oath, this fancy term, oath of self-malediction. 
It's a life and death promise that's being made. And so this is what's happening here. Is this, this is a covenant-making ceremony where these animals are split. And so this is how binding it is. Verses 12 through 16 then, uh, Max read through about the first of it there. Um, yeah, 14 then picks this up. He says, uh, know for certain that you're going to dwell in this land, but then you're going to dwell in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Um, but this land will be yours. I promise to follow through. Verse 14, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, most shocking part of the ceremony. Typically, both parties are passing through. Okay, Notice what happens. When the sun had gone down, And it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This is representative of God's presence. Remember uh, with the fiery, cloudy pillar in Exodus. This is God's presence manifest here. That passes between these pieces. Okay, Abraham's asleep at this point. Um, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your offspring I give this land the river of Egypt to the river of the great Euphrates, and then describes the rest of it. Um, but what's hugely important about this is that Abraham, Abram does not pass through these pieces. God alone passes through these pieces, which is to say he will fulfill the obligations of this covenant. He's going to uphold this promise. He said, I'm so committed to keeping my promise to you that I'm willing to die to make it so. We know it's coming, that that's exactly what he would do. Here's a quote from Robertson. We'll end with this and look at the sign next week. The Lord God assumed to himself the obligations of both parties in the covenant. Whether God or Abraham broke the covenant, we know who does break the covenant, right? Uh, No matter. In either case, the Lord would absorb into himself the curses of the covenant. Malediction was spoken only over the Lord himself. So that's where we'll end this week. We'll look at the covenant sign next week and then trace this through the rest of the Old Testament. Um, You could do a lot worse than spending a whole lot of time in Genesis 15 if you're looking for passage to really explore and to to meditate in, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful uh, for your grace to us and your incredible, incredible commitment to fulfill your promises to us. Uh, We praise you that we are the recipients of those promises this morning. And we ask that you would enable us to worship you now, to be grateful uh, for uh, your covenant-keeping character. And we praise you and worship you now in Christ's name. Amen.